This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Classic View from the Boundary on the TMS Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Test Match Special Podcast. This is Simon Mann with you for another trip down memory lane as we revisit a classic view from the boundary from 2011. The match in question was at Lords between England and Sri Lanka. Though the game finished in a draw, it's remembered for centuries from Sir Alistair Cook and Matt Pryor as well as a massive 193 from the tourist Tilly Karatni Dilshan. Our guest up in the commentary box was the author Sebastian Folks. Best known for his novels Birdsong and Charlotte Grey, Folks has been described as one of the most impressive novelists of his generation. As well as his writing, Folks is a keen cricketer and, as we'll hear, has plenty of playing experience. So let's go back to 2011 when he joined me in the commentary box on a sunny Saturday in June. Hello, Simon. Nice to be here. It was great to have you uh, here with us. But you're a, the reason we invite people onto a view from the boundary is because they are big cricket fans as well and you are a big cricket fan you've, li- you've listened to this program for longer yeah. than probably blows has been on it i should think i would think so unless he's been on it 50 years even he can't have been on it that long it seems <laughs> like it sometimes <laughs> no uh cricket was a huge part of uh, my growing up um we grew up uh, near newbury in berkshire and my dad was a keen cricketer club cricketer and uh, just all summer long, we were either listening to what was, I think then on uh, the third programme, as it then was, the commentary, or watching a rather sort of furry black and white television broadcast, or, of course, playing in the garden, uh, and then at school. So, and although I'm a bit too old to be much of a performer anymore, I mean, I have played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games. To what sort of standard? Um, I suppose if I was being kind to myself, I'd say sort of superior village, <laughs> but really not much better than that. Um, I play now really only in, uh, at the end of the summer for a team called the Boffins, which is, a, as the name implies, a fine, fit, athletic group of young men. And we go down to uh, Devon and we play some games down there against um, Sidmouth, Seaton, along that coast, Kilmington, and a wonderful village called Chardstock, where the uh, pitch is on a sort of 45-degree slope. So if you have a sort of half-decent off-spinner, <laughs> you're off to a very good, uh, good start there. But occasionally, even though this is very, very light-hearted cricket, um, you know, we'll come across a good player and, uh, you know, a Devon opening bowler or an imported professional playing in the leagues. And that, that's always a bit of a poser. And um, a few years ago, the Boffins had taken a, a lot of hammer from Budley Salterton, uh, one of the local teams, and uh, we got a bit fed up with this. So um, the chap who runs our team, Tony Fairburn, who works in the racing business or did for a long time, decided that we'd stiffen our team by getting in a pro. And uh, the pro we chose was Keith Arthurton, who at that time was still playing for the West Indies. Quite how uh, we fixed this, I don't know. But anyway, we turned up to play at Budley. And they were rather bored with having beaten us so often. So um, they'd only got nine people playing for them. So I was deputed with my brother to fill in for them, which meant that we were bowling at Arthurton. And my brother, who bowls sort of military medium at, at his best, got hit pretty hard, including through my hands at square legs. So it was a bit of teapotting at that moment. But anyway, eventually when Arthurton scored about 32 in about 10 minutes, um, my brother Edward bowled him a sort of perfectly respectable ball, sort of 
on a length, but it's sort of stuck in the wicket a bit, Budley being a very low-lying ground next to the sea. And it just, Arthurton sort of played a forward defensive shot just for fun, really, and it just took the edge, and it flew like a rocket, and it hit the Budley first slip right in the ribs. He let out this terrible roar, clutched his ribs, and when he took his hand away, the ball was still there. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> So that was, uh, you know, we have uh, some pretty good moments. So like he that. didn't do the job he, he was picked to do, which is to win you the game. Uh, no, no. Well, he, uh, he was uh, very sporting about the whole thing, but my brother was, uh, had to think pretty quickly on his feet as to how he'd done it. He said, well, it's my classic in-swing. The first time I found a man good enough to get a touch. <laughs> what, what do you do? do you, you're a bowler, a batsman? Um, I used to keep wicket. Um, I'm really too tall, but no one else would do it, so I had to do it. And uh, I was an opening batsman of rather in the sort of Colin Milburn mould, I think, you know, go for it from the off and um, uh, and hope for the best. Do you come to Lords much? Is this, a, is this a big treat for you today? It's a big treat. Well, certainly being up in this wonderful um, commentary box looking down, I probably get here, you know, once or twice a year. I live quite nearby. Um, but I've been coming here for a long, long time. And one of the first times I came was in the old Gillette Cup days. And I remember seeing Yorkshire against Surrey here and uh, Jeff Boycott scored 140-odd, I think. We don't talk about that very often. I, I, uh, he's not in the box, but I know he'd like to be reminded of a shot he hit over Cow Corner off Ken Barrington. <laughs> or oh, a slog from uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, the first time I'd ever seen him get the ball off the turf. <laughs> he might claim it was mid-wicket, but believe me, it was Cow Corner. <laughs> well, that was supposed to be one of his, his great innings, wasn't it? The, uh, I think the, was it 147 he made? Yeah. Was it, was it that innings? Yeah, he did. And it was interesting because uh, a lot, it was in the early days of one day and a lot of very, very high pedigree test batsmen couldn't really uh, adapt to playing, you know, across the line and hitting the ball in the air at all. I mean, Colin Cowdery, for instance. But um, Sir Geoffrey was... Um he played fantastically well that day. I noticed you've knighted him. We we knight him as well. Well, it just it just seems the only way to go, doesn't it? Did you sit on the grass here when you came to Lords? You used to be able to do that, didn't you, in the, um, in the early days of one-day cricket? No, I, I don't remember sitting on the grass. We were in the Warner Stand, which then was was quite uh, new. But it's it's fantastic um, seeing the Sri Lankans here because I have had the great pleasure of playing in Sri Lanka um, about thirty years ago. Um, the Guardian newspaper took a team out there which was quite a, uh, an exciting thing to do because it was before Sri Lanka were uh, playing test cricket, just before, I think. And they didn't have a lot of visitors from England in those days. And the p people were so incredibly kind and so enthusiastic and uh, the island was so beautiful that we all sort of fell in love with it. And we had the most wonderful, wonderful time there in uh, Colombo where we played at the main pitch and then we went up to Candy and up into the hills and so on. And uh, they were just so enthusiastic. And you have very large crowds, which were, you know, we were only a newspaper team. We mm. were pretty, you know, a lot of paunchy hacks, you know, <laughs> not very athletic. But the, we played in a place called Kuronegala. I played there. Have you? Yeah. 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 And there were about 5,000 people watching, mm. and mostly small boys aged about 10. Everyone seemed to be aged 10. <laughs> but we had a wonderful, wonderful day. And at the end, a, a big huge rock party. there. Yes, yeah. this massive yeah. rock. Yeah. Incredible setting. And at the party afterwards, it was a, a Buddhist dry day which meant uh, effectively no alcohol but in fact in the pavilion you were asked if you wanted beer or whiskey and if you said beer you got a bottle of beer and if you said whiskey you got a bottle of whiskey <laughs> about one o'clock this amazing dancing was going on hundreds of people it was such, such fun 
How many games did you win? Because when I went on a tour to Sri Lanka, we lost every single game. We won a few, um, but they were good. And we played a lot of uh, sort of schools, uh, boys of 16, 17, and they played shots that I hadn't really seen before. That sort of lift over the mm. slips on these very bouncy uh, wickets and some of them coconut matting. And uh, uh, we just about um, held our heads up. Um, then we got to um, Madras. We went on to India. And then we rather met our Waterloo. Um, we went to practice at the uh, Chapork the day before we were due to play Madras. And I couldn't think how on earth we'd been scheduled to play against Madras. It's like playing against Yorkshire or something. <laughs> and we had a rather disappointing practice. And I went into the um, pavilion afterwards. And uh, Venkat, who was the captain of Madras, was standing at the bar. And I... Um, rather sort of nervously engaged him in conversation. I said, you, you do realise, don't you, that we are just a group of sort of out-of-condition journalists? And he said, oh, please don't worry in the slightest. My team is very much weakened by test match calls against Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> so my knees turned to water. But they put out a very, <laughs> very friendly team. <laughs> Well, so we had a, a sort of game, but they were still far, were far, far, far too good. Too good. Yeah. Even yeah. the sort of, you know, youths and old men were far too good, yeah. Did you play against or with Gary Sobers, you were telling me? Um, it was, I tell you, gosh, how terrible of me. Yes, I did drop that name. Um, <laughs> that was another um, moment where, a rather dreamlike moment, because as a child, you know, growing up, I didn't really have heroes very much, um, but I had two heroes, one of whom was Bobby Moore. And the other was Gary Sobers, and I spent most of my childhood imitating Gary Sobers in the garden, bowling, you know, left arm over to my brother. And I played in a game up in Stafford for the Houses of Parliament. I can't, know, can't imagine why. We played against an old Barbados team. Uh, they weren't that old, though. They included um, Joel Garner, who'd only retired about um, a year before. So I was hiding in the pavilion, not try, trying no. not to catch the captain's eye. But eventually I got into bat about number five, and thank goodness Garner was off by then. But Gary Sobers was bowling, and it was a completely surreal experience mm. to be facing this person whom you'd imitated, impersonated in your own garden, and who was just a great god, I mean, probably the greatest cricketer there's ever been. And I patted the first two or three balls back down the pitch with so much respect and care. And then the fourth one, he looked to me a bit like a long hop. And I thought, I can't believe Sagari was bowled a long hop. But I looked again, it was still sitting up there. So I carted him over square leg for four. Uh, uh, to tell the truth, it was a bit of a top edge, actually. But we, <laughs> you don't need to know that. Next one, a bit quicker, was it? Uh, uh, yes, a bit quicker. <laughs> yes, but he was terribly, uh, terribly friendly about the whole thing. They were charming people. I understand. You know, this is, you're, you're, what's your... Um you're on Desert Island Discs, weren't you? What's your, what was your luxury? It's worth, I think it's worth reminding people who didn't listen to the programme. Yes, years it was ago. on a couple of... Uh, Desert Island Discs, which are, uh, after Test Match Special is everyone's um, thing that they really, really want to be on. And as far as a luxury was concerned, I chose a bowling machine with a strip of coconut matting and net and an endless supply of balls. And I wanted the bowling machine to be a one that you could set to replicate Shane Warne or Michael Holding or whoever it might be. And then, you know, one would just play sort of timeless tests in uh, forever and ever, and England would probably just win them all narrowly. It, it, is that what you'd choose as well? Yeah, well, <laughs> funny enough, that's exactly what I would have chosen as well, if I ever, ever on that programme, which was unlikely ever to happen. But I think Henry's been on, the, on, Des on uh, Desert Island Disc, but, mm. uh, that, yeah, because you, endless sunshine. Yeah. The only problem is, is you'd get so good, but you wouldn't ever, ever be able to come back and, and uh, play here or play against, you know, play at a high level. I think Shane Warren would occasionally find me out, you know, even after a few years. 
I'm talking to Sebastian Folks, and uh, we're going to move on from uh, cricket to talk about um, writing. I mentioned at the start that uh, you, you said you, you, you made up your mind to be a writer at, at the age of 14. Is that right? You, 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 you yes, set yourself much. that ambition? Yes, I did. Um, at school, when I was uh, about that age, I first started you know, graduating away from uh, police stories, crime thrillers and adventures into what we call proper books. And I was so thrilled by what I read um, that I thought, oh, this would be wonderful to do this. And most of these books seem to be rather sort of anti-establishment, which is very exciting to you when you're 14 or 15. They seem to be taking the mickey out of authority quite a lot. But at the same time, their authors were praised and respectable and knighted. And so, so I thought, this is, this is what I'll do. I'll try, and, uh, I'll try and do for other people what these writers have done for me, which is to make me feel uh, happy and alive and part of something bigger than myself. And how did it progress at the age of... 14 because Birdsong, which is, I mean, the novel that's, I mean, made your name really, didn't yeah. it? I mean, that was published when you were what, 40? I, I was 40 when yeah. it came out, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, you, when you're at school, you go and see the careers teacher, they don't say, oh, yes, novelist, fine, yes, well, I'll just do this. So, no, you have to make it up. You have to, uh, all, all writers make their own way, and it's no one, there are no schools which teach you. It's not like art school where you can be taught how to draw and paint and how to make things. Uh, you just have to do it by trial and error. You read a heck of a lot. And, of course, meanwhile, you have to pay the rent yourself and you have to get other jobs. I think a lot of writers, young writers, make the mistake of thinking the world owes them a living and that their books must immediately be in print and be bestsellers and so on. And that's one of the few mistakes I didn't make. I, I, I recognised that I had to get a job and then I would write in the time that I could make available. Was that easy or was it, was it really hard work? Well, it was pretty hard, actually. Yeah. I mean... The first novel I wrote actually was about cricket. It was about a cricket match. And um, I submitted it to various publishers, and it came back pretty rapidly. <laughs> but part of the problem, of course, was that it had 22 main characters. <laughs> but what was the plot? What was it called? Um, the plot was really... Uh, they were too complex and too boring <laughs> okay, to go right, into. OK, fair enough. Um, but uh, I, I learned a few lessons from it, and you just have to learn from your mistakes and all the piles of paper you throw away. And, but, but most of all, you learn from reading other people and thinking, oh, that's good. How, how could I copy that? How could I make that work? Or conversely, actually, that really doesn't work at all. But if that character had been a woman, not a man, and had been 36, not 94, hmm, then, you know, so you can, there's nothing you can't learn from. What was your what was your first book that you wrote, and you had a rejection slip? And were you were you um, disappointed? Obviously disappointed yeah. by that. But did, did it disillusion you, or did you just did um, well, keep going? I'd, no, it, it put a bit of fire in my belly. Really, I thought I'm just going to do this. I'm going to make sure I keep plodding away, and uh, you know, keep it there or thereabouts in the corridor of uncertainty. You know, just keep trying, and. I slightly altered the kind of books that I was writing and uh, I then wrote a book called A Trick of the Light which was quite short and it was quite modern and it had quite a powerful story, almost thriller-like story and it was a semi-cynical way of getting into print I felt and that was finally published when I was about 30 and then the book after that was called The Girl at the Lyon Door which was set in France in 1936 which is really the book I'd wanted to write all along mm. but I didn't feel anyone was going to accept it. Why did you feel that? Um, because you know, to write a book set in a foreign country in the past, if you're unknown, and it was a complex book about, you know, people's personal relationships and the effect of the historical past on the individual present, was, it seemed, didn't seem to me to be naturally a terribly, um, you know, commercial proposition. 
But uh, and indeed, you know, I don't think the publisher thought it was either, judging by the advance they paid. But it, it actually sold okay; it sold quite well, and um, people still still read it. What about your research, um, bird song? Um, all, all, I mean, I, I remember reading that. You know, all that t- detail about being in the, the tunnels in, in in the First World War. Mm. Um, how, how much research do you, did you do for that? I mean, what, what, how do you do research for that? Um, it, the answer really is not quite as much as you might think. Um, really, what you're doing as a novelist is you are making things up and you are imagining things. And the task I had to do was to know somehow what it felt like to be a 20-year-old boy about to go over the top on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And, of course, most of them who went over didn't leave any account of it because they weren't able to because they died. Uh, so all you can do is sort of read around. And I went to the Imperial War Museum and I read hundreds of letters and postcards and diaries and documents and so on. And you pick up little details from that. But really the, the big effort of research is looking into yourself and looking into your imagination and trying to sing, think, um, well, how would it feel? Of course, the odd thing about very huge events when they're happening is that a little bit of you remains slightly detached. And a little bit of you is still thinking about... Um, the fact that you've got an itch in your shirt or that there's a sort of nasty taste of the, the rum ration still in your mouth or tiny little things like this. And it was by the combination of, of those tiny little sort of what you might almost call domestic details combined with the perspective that we have from history knowing what those men didn't know that, that made me able to just about give a, a convincing account of it. When you'd finished it, did you think, I've, I'm on to something here, I've, I think I think this is pretty good, I think it's, this is going to really work for me? I did feel when I'd finished it that, what I suppose I felt was a bit, when a, a diver in, a, in the Olympic Games goes for a dive off the top board, it's marked not just by the execution but by the tariff of difficulty. And I felt it was a very high tariff of difficulty, what I was trying to do. And I wasn't aware when I entered the water that I had messed up any element of it but that still doesn't mean to say that I th- mm. thought everyone would agree and when I popped up out of the water to extend the analogy I still looked very nervously towards the judges but it, but it, saw, it sold incredibly well it, it, caught, it caught people's imagination didn't it uh, yes it did not to begin with but uh, it was well received you know by the reviewers but it took a long time it wasn't until it came out in paperback something had happened between the hardback and the paperback publication do you know what that was Word of mouth, a simple word of mouth recommendation. I've read this extraordinary book, etc., etc., and people would say, "Well, it's set in the First World War." And I was like, "God, what a yawn! How disgusting! Mm. I want to know about that." Then someone said, "Well, actually, you know, just read it." And somehow, like a snowball going downhill, it uh, it eventually reached a sort of critical mass. I think. Did it change your life? Uh, It did, in a very simple sense that. I became a sort of viable writer. I mean, I could make a living from writing after that, though I didn't expect to. I was always ready to go back to to work. I worked as a journalist for a long time, newspapers, and I kept my hand in. I did sort of freelance stuff, and I suppose it was only a couple of years ago that I thought, A, I can't go back, and B, I could be completely unemployable, you know, no one would want me. You don't, presumably, you don't need to go back now, though. You've sold so many copies of books, and you've you've sold the... um the, the film of, of, of Charlotte Grey as well? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't anticipate having a, 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 another full-time job at this stage, but uh, <laughs> I just don't know what I'd do. I don't, but um, 
So no, I stick stick with what I what I know best and what I've done for the last twenty years. Do you enjoy writing, or is it is it hard work? Is it do you, some days you get up, and you think I I just don't want. What do you do? You, do you write, or do you get your laptop out? Or I, well, I go to an office. I don't work right. at home. Um, I have a little office or studio office about ten minutes walk away, and. Some days you do and some days you don't. And some books are more enjoyable than others. I mean, uh, the last book I wrote called A Week in December was kind of a nightmare to write, really. It was a lot of research and it was like trying to put together a sort of a Rubik cube in either hand. It was very, very technical, very tricky. And um, I didn't really like any of the characters. I mean, you're not, no, nor is the reader meant to like them either. I mean, apart from one or two, I suppose, a bit. Um, the book I'd written before that was the James Bond adventure mm. to mark the centenary of Ian Fleming. Devil Fleming's. May Care. Yeah, Ian yeah. Fleming's. And that was just absolute joy <laughs> from start. It only took six weeks. It was joy from start to finish. And the book I'm writing now, um, I've written 40,000 words, again in a first-person uh, narration, and I've really enjoyed that. It's, a, it's about an American singer-songwriter woman in the early 70s, a bit like sort of Carly Simon or Joni Mitchell, one of those sort of people, but completely invented. And the great thing about writing in the first person, it's not her who narrates, actually, it's her manager who's her boyfriend, is that once you've got the voice in yeah. your head, they sort of write the book for you. Yeah. You just tune in and you just then type. <laughs> so that, that's been very exhilarating. But that's only one part of the book. And the book, the, the part I'm writing at the moment, is much more hard graft. You know, it's... Uh, you know, it, it's it's like cricket. Everything's like cricket, really. I'm now in a sort of head down, nose over mm. the ball, and you know, make sure I don't make any mistakes for a few overs. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor for life, cricket, isn't it? It's total. <laughs> um, so, but do you, so when you when you when you write and you get up in the morning, you say, mm. right, I'm going to write for an hour. I'm going to write for two hours. I'm going to write for five hours, or I'm going to write a thousand words today, or five hundred words today. Um, I. I work very sort of normal hours, 10 till 6 or 9 till 5, really, going a bit like working in insurance, except, <laughs> except it's not. Um, never less than 1,000 words a day, and sometimes, sometimes I'll do two, but usually about 1,400, 1,500. And sometimes they come quickly and sometimes they don't. Um, uh, but you are all, you're writing all the time in your mind. Uh, you're turning it over when you go to sleep. Mm. And the actual physical typing aspect of it is... Is, a, is really quite a small part of it. Though it's also true to say that some days when you go in, you don't know what's coming. You know you've just got to write a bridge between two incidents or two pieces of the book that you know exist. And you're just sort of feeling your way. And as Alan Bennett said, you know, you have to go in. It's like going to the post office just to see if anything's come in. <laughs> and uh, those are hard days. But suddenly, sometimes it's not until five o'clock in the evening that something comes in. And then your thousand words are done in 20 minutes. Mm. So it's variable. Do you carry notebooks around with you where you're, you write an idea, don't you up on the tube? You uh, very, you don't you know, no, I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> but I occasionally scribble. The back of checkbooks have quite a lot of mm. completely indecipherable stuff. Well, sometimes you have a wonderful thought and then yeah. later on you think, oh, what was it I was thinking about earlier? Yeah. Um, no, sadly, I have very few of those. <laughs> How do, uh, your plots, what, what, how do you, um, I mean, that's, that's how long is a piece of string in a way, I suppose, but how do you decide what you're going to write about? Um, it just comes over a period of a long time, and, and really what it is, is, is things which fascinate you, interest you, obsess you, and the difficulty is um, to determine the difference between a thought and an idea. Uh, so I may be very interested by um, certain notes in a female singer's um, repertoire. And I tr talk about this in the pub, and if people's sort of eyes glaze over and they say, well, this is really completely uninteresting, mm. very technical about music, 
Um, and I know that's just a thought I've shared and we move on. But if, if people sort of, it lights up their eyes and say, yes, that's very interesting, of course. You know, I wonder if people write songs in order just to include those notes. And, and also, to what extent do these people write about their own lives? And do you think it's possible that a singer might actually live her life in order to give herself material for a song? And you think, well, you wouldn't do that, would you? But suddenly that's more than a thought. That's kind of an idea. You can see some sort of flesh on that, particularly if you put it together with another idea. And then the plot itself, which is simply the incidents which happen, are kind of determined really by the ideas you're talking mm. about. They simply illustrate the ideas. So you do a bit of market research, do you, before you start writing? Uh, so, yeah, kind of pub research, yeah, conversational research. And uh, I think it's quite important to do that. And um, it still doesn't mean to say that you're going to be able to express. I mean, in a week in December, I was quite... Um, wound up by the sort of contract that uh, investment banking had pulled on the public in this country. But it was hard to get people interested, even though I said, well, they've stolen your money and your job. People still wouldn't say, well, they just say it's a sort of boring subject, really. So, you know, you really have to work then to make these, these ideas accessible to people. And when you finish a book these days, obviously you had to fight at the start, as all mm. young authors have to do. When you, when you finish a book these days, does it automatically get published because of your, because of your name now? Or does, it, does your editor or whoever say, mm, Sebastian, I'm not quite sure this, this is what we're looking for, or, or they just wait, wave it through? How does it work? Um, I mean, you have, I have a contract at the moment for two books, which they, which they will publish. Um, but if they think that they've fallen a bit short, they will politely say, I'm not sure this works, or, you know, it, it's a bit dry, or it's a bit long, and have you thought about, you know, altering it? And I'm, I very, very much welcome that, mm. those sort of... So I you're wish quite I'd hard more. on yourself. Are you? You're happy to be happy for someone to be hard on you as well? Very much so. Um, I, a, a book I wrote called Human Traces, which was a long and difficult book, I actually sent it out to people outside my publishers, two people whose opinion I very much respected and they both read it they both liked it they both wrote detailed notes but unfortunately they radically disagreed and their suggestions were completely opposite mm. so it's 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 hard and you know the longer you go on the more people tend to say well he knows best but i don't think that's the case you know you don't have objectivity you want someone else's eye and so and you want it before it's too late you don't want it when it's come out you no. want it before well talking about when it's come out do you read your reviews do you read your, read your uh, newspaper reviews? Um, yes, I not. I'm not a sort of keen student as they come out, but I see them in the end, and uh, I help pick them. You know which ones they're going to put on the paperback right. and so on. Um, and I think it's it's not helpful to read them at the time it's going on because you have to go and do a lot of publicity. And if you've just received a terrible review, you're feeling rather downcast, mm. and you've got to go on the radio and talk about your book. Or if you've just had a sort of fantastically good review, you think you're walking on water, and then that's not very attractive either. So it's better to read them later, I think. Mm. Well, what about um, reviews that your uh, readers write? Because if you go onto the Amazon website mm. and say, mm. all the books are reviewed by people mm. who've, who've read them, and, and some of them can be pretty harsh can't they yeah i i don't read internet stuff actually i think it's um uh, ian McEwan has a good phrase for it it's sort of road rage he calls it mm. there's a kind of you know sort of bag lady thing going on out there which i, I don't think is really uh, healthy to read. Uh, of course you know lots of people who write on uh, you know these things are uh, perfectly sensible but uh, th there's not much of a filter on the internet is there no none at all but yeah but, but are you not tempted sometimes to to go on there. I'm really not, you know, no. I'm really not, no. Um, my uh, internet access is very, very limited to sort of, you know, Radio 5 Live, BBC, you know, sport, and that's about it. And mm. I, don't, I don't really read much else. You're, 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 it's probably the best thing to, to do, actually, because one, one bad review can destroy all, you know, ten, ten good ones. I think people, a lot of people tend to obsess about the one bad one and, and, and forget the other one. So, therefore, I think it's best to, I let them get sort of filtered by the people that publish and then mm. 
But on the other hand, I think it is good to, to read them. I think it is good to know. And you can actually, uh, some people will put their finger on something that's wrong, that was troubling you and you weren't quite aware of. And you think, yeah, they've got that right. I'll, I'll make sure I don't do that again, you know. So they, they can be helpful in that sense. Do you think books in their traditional form, i.e. You know, published on the page with, with a hardback and then a, a paperback, a, a history, if you like, and that it's all going to be um, e-books from now on? Uh, it's too soon to say, um, but it's going through a fantastic revolution at the moment. I mean, my contract with my publisher has a provision in it for e-books, with, and it has a clause saying to be revisited not later than two years, and that's one year ago. It is changing so fast, and e-books are now beginning to outsell, you know, physically existing books or p-books. Um, I, I don't know, um, uh, but. At the moment, it doesn't look very helpful or hopeful for the author because the people who are taking the biggest slice of the money are the people who provide the apps and the people, you know, Apple and Google and all the intermediaries. A friend of mine told me he read a business plan which showed um, something like 105% of the purchase price of the e-book already divvied up between the various intermediaries without any money at all going to the person <laughs> so who created it. Yeah. But of course that will, you know, that, that, that will sort itself out. And I think eventually the author's take will go up to about 50%. You'll take 50% royalty, but it'll be 50% on five quid. Which, in it, yeah. I think your, our best hope is it comes back to roughly you make the same amount per unit as now. But I'm which, sure. Which is how much? How much do you, uh, do you about, make? About 50 pence for a hardback and uh, for a paperback and about two quid for a hardback, roughly. Right. So, 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 so two pounds out of 18.99 or something? Yeah, that's, uh, that's at the top end. Doesn't that, seem a great deal for all your labours, does it? It doesn't, no. Um, but, you know, the bookshop will take a, a huge... will take 50, 50, 55% of that, and they're paying very high rent, etc., etc., etc. But uh, it is... I mean, you read very, very um, depressing articles which say that in 10, 20 years' time, no-one will in the world will be able to make a living out of writing. And, you know, what the music business... Do you believe you know, that? Uh, I try not to, but I'm, I'm hoping if it's 20, I may be, I may be OK. <laughs> I may be under the wire by then. That's quite a depressing thought, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What would be your advice to aspiring writers listening? Uh, my advice to aspiring writers would be um, ignore the advice that's always given to people, which, which, is, which is write about what you know. Yeah. Write about what you don't know. That would be my first advice. Um, stretch yourself. Give, give, give an example. Well, don't, uh, if you're trying to write a novel, this is, um, don't write about someone of your age and of your sex and of your nationality and living in the present day. If you're a man, write about a woman. Write about someone younger or older living in another country at another time. And that way you'll stretch yourself and think, gosh, what is it like to be someone else? What is going on in that person's head and life? Uh, secondly, write only what you care terrifically about. Don't try and write to a market or for a market or something you think is sellable. Write only what matters hugely to you. And thirdly, just keep plugging away like Glenn McGraw. Hmm. Be Glenn McGraw. Do you think people um, d deliberately write to get published? Some people do, yeah. And, does, and that doesn't work? Uh, I think it depends. I mean, some people write, they change the way they write, and then they have a big success, and then they write again and again. I was hearing on the radio coming in today an American writer called Jodie Picou, who is a, a sort of teenage writer, and I think she stumbled into a sort of genre by chance, and then found it worked, and she writes, I don't know what the, quite what her motivation is, but for money she writes in this genre, and good for her. But generally, I think you should write what you want to write, not what you think people will buy. Mm. 
how how should people deal with those rejection slips? Because I mean, people people write in, don't they? People, you know, a lot. I mean, even um, very well known uh, authors have been re- rejected a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, J- I mean, J.K. Rowling. Whatever you whatever you think about the 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 body of work that she's created, mm. uh, it's been hugely successful, oh, yeah. and yet it was turned down on probably numerous occasions at the start. Of the Harry yeah. Potter. So all publishers have um, great stories about rejecting. Um, you know, a friend of mine was. Uh, submitted to a very long book about um, Chinese woman's family written in what he described as um, you know, not very good English and said oh, I really can't think anyone's going to read this anyway, it was Wild Swans mm. and it became the biggest selling non-fiction book ever written uh, so publishers are not infallible and publishers often are just looking for a li- something, a specific piece of the jigsaw which will, which will fit the specific gap in their list. So the fact that one publisher turns you down, I mean the girl at the Lyon d'Or, my second novel was turned down by two publishers, I think. Um, it just didn't fit, they liked it in, well enough, it doesn't fit what they wanted to do, mm. so got to keep trying. Mm. Which book were you, have you... Most proud that you've written. You, you, you know, you've, you picked one out. I noticed you brought um, Engleby for for Agus today, and you signed signed copy of him. Is that is that the book that you you, you like most that you've written? It was the only first edition I could find on the bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> and Engleby's such a weird character. I thought Agus might he, enjoy where it. Come, where did he come from? <laughs> I don't know. He came. He's a, he's a, for the people who haven't read it, he's a, basically he's a, a murderer, isn't he? I'm afraid he is. Yes, yeah. but he's a very charming murderer in his way. He's a sort of geeky, charming guy, and you're not quite sure whether he's done it or not. But I'm afraid the bad news is that he does end up in somewhere very like Broadmoor, and the things are not looking good for him. Mm. I don't know where it came out of, but um, I hope um, Agus will enjoy it anyway. <laughs> So which book did you um, do you enjoy most? Or um, I think the one does it not really work like that? It doesn't really. I mean, I think the I mean, Birdsong is a book that I uh, it, it has meant a great deal to me, and the fact that it has meant so much to other people matters to me. Um, Human Traces, I think, is the book that I am most proud of in a way, but it's it's quite a difficult book for everyone to to get a to get a handle on. Um, but really, it's always the next one that you're most excited about. So. It's the next one. And the next one is going to be called, and when is it going to be published? It should come out next year, provided, um, you know, I don't fall under a bus. And the provisional title is A Possible Life. That it made, the publisher may say, that's a terrible title, let's call it, you know, something else, we'll see. And how far down the line are you with it? I'm about a third of the way through. Right. Yeah. So it's to the office on, on Monday oh. and, and six hours and what, eight hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and then home, at, home the, at six, yeah. You hope you get the inspiration at 10.30 rather than 5.30. That would be nice, that yeah. would be nice, yes. Well, it's been a great pleasure. I could talk all afternoon to Sebastian Folks, uh, but the players are back out at Laws for the afternoon session. Thank you very much, Simon, and on behalf of all the village cricketers, may I thank you and all the team for the fantastic pleasure you've given us over so many years. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Folks remains one of the nation's favourite writers and, of course, keeps right across his cricket. Since we're on the subject of authors, here's a snippet of another writer who's taken a view from the boundary. The year was 2012 and Jonathan Agnew chatted to Adrian Mole creator Sue Townsend. It was cricket that made me realise, actually, that um, I'd got a serious sight problem because my husband was driving me to the station, um, as he did, you know, a lot of mornings in a week because I, I worked a lot in London. And... Um, and it was about eight o'clock in the morning. And I looked over Victoria Park and I could see these cricketers. Mm. And I said, 
that's so early to be playing cricket in the morning. And they're all in whites. And I said, what's going on? And he said, nobody is playing cricket, soon. There's nobody on Victoria Park. And I said, of course there, there is. I can see them. And what it was, we were going by, and it was the war memorial. Right. The white marble um, seen through trees as you travelled along. Oh, yeah. it, it, the brain obviously sent a message to me, white, and, and it was cricket. You know, the brain is... Um, when you lose your sight, the brain panics a bit and keeps sending messages, the messages that it thinks fit the image that you're you know, trying to get, such as potato peelings looking like rubber gloves or vice versa. So you throw the rub, rub gloves in the bin thinking they're potato peelings. Really? It will supply an image, yeah, and then it gets used to the fact that you can't see properly. That must have been but a... That was the first, yeah. first thing that was made me realise. Yeah. It's sad in a way that cricket mm. should, have, should have done that. Too, I really. know, I know, but I do love it. If you'd like to listen to all of that interview, just subscribe to the TMS podcast to make sure you don't miss a thing. BBC Sounds. As things slowed down for everyone this year, I've decided to reach out to Virgil van Dyke amongst loads of other A-list guests. That buzz of going out there and playing for 60,000, 70,000 at Enfield, you're going to miss that at one point. I talked to them about what gets them up in the morning and how they dealt with the world grinding to a halt. I really don't have those days when I think I don't want to because I know I have to. Join boxing promoter Eddie Hearn for the No Passion, No Point podcast. Subscribe on BBC Sounds. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.